Third Rail Classroom is produced with the support of Bedford Freeman and Worth Publishers, the high school division of Macmillan Learning. BFW provides instructional materials and teacher support specifically for advanced placement, as well as some key on-level courses. Find them online at www.bfwpub.com. Welcome to Third Rail Classroom. I'm John Golden. I'm Santa Cassell, and this is a show where we try to touch on those topics in education that are just not talked about enough, publicly at least. Santa and I are both or have been classroom teachers as well as instructional coaches. We're hoping to bring you to the front lines of the struggles that teachers, students, parents, and the larger community face these days in the classroom and beyond. This season, we'll be talking about teacher quality, one of the most impactful and least discussed topics in education by classroom teachers, certainly. In today's episode, Santh and I will discuss why talking about teacher quality is such a third rail topic, what the conditions are like for most schools to help us get better at teaching or keep us from doing so, and we'll frame the main issues around teacher professional learning that we'll discuss throughout this second season. But Santa, before we get started, could you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself, your career in education, especially what your role is this year? Sure, John. This is my 23rd or 24th year in education. I started out at Roosevelt High School here in Portland, Oregon, teaching language arts, journalism, and culinary arts, and then transitioned to instructional work, new teacher mentoring, and coaching. This year will be my second year doing academic coaching with AP students and supporting AP teachers with common learning and review practices. Sometime I want to follow up with you on the culinary arts teaching that you did, (laughs) but your work this year sounds fascinating and super relevant to what we're going to be doing this year. And for those of you who haven't yet listened to season one, where a colleague and I discussed how to make our grading more equitable, just a bit about me. I'm starting either my 29th or 30th year. Apparently, neither of us can keep track of the years in education, mostly as a high school English teacher with a few scattered years in instructional coach and a few district curriculum specialist years in a cubicle that I don't want to talk about. So this year I'll be teaching ninth grade English at Cleveland High School in Portland, just about a few miles down two very busy roads from your school, Santa. So why don't you come on down and hang out in my classroom sometime? I'd love to. So Santa, I'm going to seriously date myself again here, but there's an old joke by George Carlin that goes something like this. Somewhere out there is the world's worst doctor. The scariest part is that someone has an appointment with him tomorrow. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who make similar jokes about us as teachers. And we know that our students regularly, both in and out of earshot, will talk about their quote-unquote good or bad teachers. But this is definitely a third rail issue because even if you and I were to talk in terms of which of our colleagues were quote-unquote good or bad, we would only do so in private and feel pretty guilty about it, I think. So my question, Santh, is this. Why is it so difficult for teachers ourselves to talk about teacher quality? In other words, why is it such a third rail issue? Wow, John, I think about these questions all the time. A little too obsessively, probably. I have some ideas, but every thought I have seems to beg even more questions. One reason I think it's hard to talk about teacher quality is that teaching makes you vulnerable in the first place, and it really is such hard work. Another reason, I think it's really hard to talk about, is that we generally don't watch each other teach. We can't usually speak from direct observation. We don't scrub in like surgeons. We don't charrette like architects. And just to scratch the surface a little more, I'm going to speak for myself. Teaching is all tied up in my identity, and I get defensive when I think I have to change what I do. When I've had a teaching failure, it felt more like a personal failure. I had a really hard time separating the two things when I was in the classroom. 100%. I think about 
We're recording this right now in August. About a month from now, I'm gonna be in my classroom, Santa, and there are gonna be 30 eyes of ninth graders looking at me, judging me, right? That makes me nervous even just thinking about it right now in a way that I think that that vulnerability that you were describing makes it really hard for me to go to a colleague and say, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm worried about something. I just don't think that those conversations happen for us in that way. No, they don't. Not always. Maybe there are some ways we can learn how to be human beings and teachers and take the hurt out of getting better a little bit more. And we're going to be interviewing experts throughout this year who are going to have their own metrics, right, about good, bad, quality teachers, effective, ineffective. But I think one of the major challenges that we have at the school level is just identifying what defines a good teacher, right? Is, is the good one the, the one who really knows the subject matter really well or connects with the kids super well or the, the teacher who gets there early, stays late, attends all the football games, right? So how do we know what those qualities are of this quote unquote, good or bad teacher. Isn't that also one of the reasons we don't talk about it? I think it is. And I also think good and bad teacher, these are meaningless phrases. It's so subjective. And if we're going to take what our students say seriously, I just don't know if good or bad are really words we want to use anymore. Well, let's picture this. So you're walking down the hallway of your school, right? And there's a kid and maybe you know this kid. And this kid is saying, oh, this teacher is so bad blah, blah, blah. What, what do you think that kid means? Hmm. I imagine that kid means that they feel like their time is being wasted in the classroom. And I would probably want to ask the student, what could change in the classroom that would make you feel like it was time better spent, that you were learning, and that you wanted to be there? I'd want to ask the student. Do you? I have. And? It's scary. <laughs> But it's also effective to get feedback from your students. That'll be one of the things that we talk about this year for sure is one of the approaches that we can take. And I think about my first year as a teacher and most of that year is a blur, partly because it was, what, 29 or 30 years ago. But I remember one thing that happened at the very end of the year where I was rushing to make copies of my final exam and the final exam was going to be the very next period. So I rushed down to the copy room, and there's another English teacher there already making some massive packet, right? And I'm clearly giving off a lot of anxious energy <laughs> by hopping from one foot to the other. And she turns to me and says, you can go ahead. I'm like, oh, no, no, you go. It's okay. You were here first. She says, she says oh, no, no, no. This is for next October. And I was, well, first I went ahead and made the copies and, and got four in line. But then I kept thinking about that is some awesome teacher. That teacher already knows what they're doing next fall and they already have it all set and packed. And I was thinking that is what a good teacher is. And for years, probably more years than I'm willing to acknowledge and, and to recognize that that's how I was. And I realize only now how problematic that is. So my, my question to you, especially in your role this year as a teacher coach, what do you say to veteran teachers who may say something like, no, I'm all good. I've been doing it this way for years. I don't need to change. I cut that packet done already now. What, what do you say? Okay, first I want to tell you that I wanted to be the teacher who knew what she was going to be doing months hence, but I never was that teacher. <laughs> but this is the challenge, exactly the challenge. Students change the way we use technology changes. Teachers get so frustrated by this inherent conflict. I know I did. 
they want to hone their skills and get really good at what they do. But the act of teaching also requires us to pivot constantly, just to bring back a big word from 2020. <laughs> I think about this quote a lot from educational philosopher Paolo Ferrer. He said so much about the life of teacher and the role of teaching, but, but this is one of my favorites. He wrote this, the task of the teacher, who is also a learner, is both joyful and rigorous. It demands seriousness and scientific, physical, emotional, and effective preparation. It's a task that requires that those who commit themselves to teaching develop a certain love, not only for others, but also of the very process implied in teaching. It is impossible to teach without the courage to love, without the courage to try a thousand times before giving up. Oh my gosh, I really love that quote. And it gets at another reason it's so hard to talk about teacher quality. This job is so hard. Teachers are amazing, and they have to be constantly changing things up, pivoting like I said, but also staying hopeful and loving while trying things a thousand times. There's so much to unpack when we think about how teachers have a hard job, we want to get better, we want to evolve, and do right by our students, and we have to keep the joy, too. This is bringing up so many conflicting ideas for me. Where are we? One of the things that I'm worried about is that we want to be careful that we're not talking about some sort of hero teacher, right? This notion of a teacher who comes in at 6.30, stays until 6.30 at night, takes the papers home. I'm not even talking about the hero teachers like Hollywood, like the Michelle Pfeiffer who can also do karate, right? That's not what we want. We are living the life of classroom teachers. That's the work that we're doing. And we have to recognize that it is an impossible job. And we're not even going to suggest that it is some heroic aspect that we have to pack all of this into because we have to live a life for our own selves. I think that's a great way to frame this series, this year. We have to learn how to get better in real time, not in big swaths of time that are idealistic. We don't have that time. So we want to learn little kind of micro adjustments that we can do to get better. Okay, so it seems like we've established a couple of things from our perspective. One, we teachers need to keep getting better because our students need for us to. And two, we don't always talk with each other about how to get better at our jobs. So what I want to move us on to is just how difficult the education system makes it for us as classroom teachers to actually improve our practice and the barriers that are intentionally or probably unintentionally put in place. So I want to frame this crudely as two types of professional learning, right? One, voluntary professional learning, and two, mandated professional learning. So I want to start with the voluntary first, because you and I both very recently attended the College Board Advanced Placement Conference in Seattle. That was not required, Santa. You chose to do that. That was a voluntary thing that you did. So <laughs> I'm curious, why did you choose to go? And what were some of the hurdles that you had to get through to attend? And what was its value? So... Because I serve AP students and teachers, I really wanted to know the habits of mind, the strategies, the tools that teachers are using that are really working. This was a national conference, so I knew I would get fresh new ideas that were totally actionable. And that is exactly what I got. <laughs> I went on a mission, and I got what I wanted. Except for one thing. I wanted more of my colleagues to be there as well. It was a great professional learning experience for me, and I wanted to share it. I'm curious, though, was it easy for you to get there? Did someone reach out to you immediately and say, hey, Santa, there's a great conference, and here's the, the, the money that you need to register? 
In other words, was that presented to you or did you have to go and hustle for it? I had to hustle for it. I had to patch together some ways to get there. Right. And so here it is. You just described this incredibly valuable, incredibly relevant professional learning experience that you could participate in, but you had to fight to get there. I just don't think that happens in other careers. I don't think other professions face that. I think that's true. I just want to say, John, I didn't fight. I had to be a little bit of a nudge. There's a difference. Good. All right. Well, it was a great conference. I had a great time, too, and it was very valuable to me. But I just want to be clear that that not all the voluntary professional development has to take place out of the school day, right? You and I went up to Seattle to do that, and we participated in a conference. But there are things that we can do for ourselves in our own classrooms that are not specifically directed or mandated by our school and our school district, right? And that's going to be some of the things that you and I are going to talk about this season. Can you give our listeners just a quick little overview of some of these topics that you think you and I are going to discuss that are voluntary professional development teachers can engage in for their own selves? Yeah, I think I've already dropped these breadcrumbs, but I'm just going to drop a few more. Asking for feedback from students is super scary, but it's quick, informative, and it can provide a teacher with useful information that they can use to reach even more students. We can use other kinds of data from students, too. We can get creative with our colleagues and do observations. We We can look at actual test or quiz results. We can get better at having productive conversations with our peers and our students. Really looking forward to these conversations, Santa, because these are going to be coming from you as an instructional coach. These are going to be things that I think that our listeners are just going to be able to take, try, see if it works, dismiss, or start to apply. I'm really looking forward to that. So we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to move on to every single teacher's favorite topic, the mandated professional learning. So while this varies by school district, there are basically two categories of mandated professional learning, school-based professional development and teacher evaluation. So let's start with the school-based PD. While it might vary a lot by district, for us here in Portland, Santa, we essentially have every Tuesday afternoon from about 3.45 to 5 o'clock for this type of PD. Though this time often competes with staff meetings and various other logistical information, right? But since you have had a lot of experience with this type of mandated school-level professional learning, can you describe some of its benefits and maybe some of its challenges? Okay, here's a benefit. Let's say school-level professional learning is built around a few really useful skills we want students to develop. Like, for instance, students using academic language in discussion, leading discussion in the classroom even. If a staff gets focused on a few skills really effectively, students get to develop those skills in multiple classes. Like they're seeing the same thing in different places and they get to keep honing that skill. Those students are going to get better at those skills and teachers are probably going to get better at teaching them. In other words, in-building professional development gives a staff a chance to get aligned and effective together. And that is ideal. That makes a ton of sense. And you can see how that unified approach, all the teachers rowing in the same direction, right? The kids are going to see the benefits of that. I think one of the challenges that I see is that our profession compared to others, they expect us to get better, but seem to provide so little time and space to do it, right? So mandatory Tuesday afternoon PD would be like asking a surgeon to attend a lecture on a brand new life-saving procedure 
but only after they've done this six-hour surgery. Like, I'm not a doctor, but I would imagine that they would schedule that essential learning at a time and place most conducive to learning, right? That's probably true for accountants, computer programmers, other professions, but for us, they take us after teaching all day. For us, we teach it in the, they bring us all down to the library, right? It's hot, there are no snacks, and now all of a sudden I have to get myself into a mindset to be a learner? That's really tricky. John, I'm pretty sure that other professions even let their practitioners continue their education in fabulous locations where they can also play golf or go scuba diving. Well, next fall, I am going to go to the National Council of Teachers of English Conference, which is in Columbus, Ohio. Oh, well, maybe you can get a few holes of golf in. <laughs> All right. So the other component of mandated professional learning is the teacher evaluation process. And this is probably the most formalized element of teacher professional learning. Every state and county varies a little bit in terms of its expectations. For us in our district, after you're a full contract teacher, what some people refer to as tenured, you go through the full evaluation process, including teacher observations, only every other year. So since this is my observation year, I'm going to record and share the process here on the podcast, and we'll see how all that goes. But something you and I aren't administrators, so we've never been administrators, so we only know sort of what it is on the receiving end of this evaluation process. But throughout your career in general, how valuable has the teacher evaluation process been to your growth and development? In other words, to what extent has it helped or hindered you from being better at teaching? Okay, speaking from my own experience, I don't find the paperwork helpful or useful. I mean, a lot of times the verbiage on the rubrics that teachers are used to get evaluated don't match my job. They don't match what I'm doing. They don't match my objectives. And so it's difficult to use those rubrics. And sometimes the language is so abstract in teacher evaluation forms that it's very hard to kind of get your fingernails in and make it work. The form is really long, too. It's been a while since I've seen it because I haven't been evaluated in a couple of years, but it's multiple pages and it has multiple pieces that I'm turning pages to try to figure out, right? And there are check boxes everywhere, proficient in some area, not, it's, it's too much. That part feels like jumping through a hoop. Yeah. But sometimes the administrator who is observing me is really great at observation. And it's one of the few times I get to be seen and heard and... It can make me feel really valued to have an administrator spending time in my classroom, especially if that administrator gives me actionable feedback that makes me feel more effective. That's a gift. Got it. So the paperwork, eh. The person behind that paperwork can be really valuable and useful to you. I'm, I'm looking forward to it this year. I'm looking forward to sort of documenting the process. The administrator is going to be evaluating me this year, someone I know, trust, respect. Unfortunately, in previous years, that has not been the case. The observation itself, sometimes the administrator was supposed to be in the classroom for the full period, was only able to stay for 25 minutes or a half an hour, missed the best part of the lesson always. Or in some cases, the observation may have taken place in, say, October, but the post-observation conference took place months after. So the value of that really gets diminished. Okay, I can totally see that. And what you're talking about are things out of your control. Yeah, yeah. So. In this podcast, we're going to focus on things that are within teacher control because that's empowering. 
Well, we start by talking about how vulnerable teachers need to be in order to improve their practice. And I am going to share, to the extent that human resources allows for me to share, the parts of my evaluation. So you can help me through that and uh, help me uh, cry through the tears as we need. Oh, wow. Talk about vulnerability. I'm going to be coaching you through your tears. All right, man. I'm game. Let's go. Well, that's it for this first episode of the second season of Third Rail Classroom. Our goal is to have a new episode every few weeks. We'll include discussions with Santa about strategies for teacher learning, interviews with national experts on the challenging issues of improving teacher quality, and my reflections on that teacher evaluation process throughout the school year. We'll collect and share all sorts of resources at our website, thirdrailclassroom.com. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Thanks so much. Thank you, Santa. This episode of Third Rail Classroom was written by John Golden and Santa Cassell, produced and edited by Laura Love.